So, Romans 13, in a minute, in a minute. Uh, there's a few who weren't here last week, so let me just reiterate and clarify what we did last week. Because it, is, it was done for a reason. There is a reason that we didn't immediately jump into Romans 13. There was a, a purpose to um, my, my madness, as it were. Um, it was important that we understood a few principles going in. Because the problem that we're trying to address is this, that the vast majority of Christians today think that Christians should simply submit to the government, obey the government in everything that the government says we should do, just simply obey, and the only exception to that would be if they commanded us to do something that was sinful. But if, if, if they don't tell us to do something sinful, then we, then we simply have to obey because, because, you know, that's what the Bible says, Romans 13, 1. And that seems to be the view of most Christians. And despite the fact that there's almost universal agreement on that interpretation, practically, the way that Christians and churches have approached an ever-encroaching government in the last year and a half or so has been astonishingly varied and divergent. And as I said last time, I think the two main reasons for that are simply that, firstly, there is the, the problem of defining sin. Well, we do what the government says unless it's, it's sinful. So the government says, well, don't go to church. Or you can go to church, but don't sing. And some Christians will say, well, you know, we have to go to church. You're telling us to sin by telling us not to go. And others will say, oh, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll miss it for a bit. We'll, we'll do it on Zoom. That counts. We'll have a live stream. That's okay. And, and so there's, not getting into that now, that's more for next week, but, but simply to say that there's been disagreement on where the, the boundary lies, even if we agree in principle, which I don't, by the way, that is, uh, you know, it's sin, that that's the, that's the dividing line, there's disagreement over where that is and what that is. And secondly, so many people will say, well, I absolutely agree with that doctrine on principle, but hey, we live in the United States of America here. It, there's a constitution. Caesar, in the realm of, of America, um, is is the constitution. It has the highest authority. So if somebody in a, with a lower authority comes along and says, do this, I say, uh-uh, I've got to bow before Caesar. Caesar's the higher authority. And there's a lot of truth to that, but it avoids dealing with their erroneous misinterpretation of Romans 13. And so we end up with churches bowing before Caesar because they think that in doing so, they're bowing before God, and others seeking to only bow before God and refusing to bow to Caesar, and the other side will say, well, they're in rebellion to God because they're not obeying Caesar. And, and the church is in disarray over this. And so I believe that if we correctly understand what the Bible teaches on this, it's actually pretty simple and pretty irrefutable. So last week, we had three simple points. Because apparently people can remember three-point sermons. I've only got two this week. So if you struggled last week, you're going you're to be fine this week. Um, but no, there were three points. Number one, all authority is God's. All authority on heaven and earth belongs to God. It is his. It is his. It is nobody else's. It is his and his alone. And he does with it as he chooses. He made us, he created us, and all authority is his. And I'm amazed that I should even have to say that. Hopefully we all accept that. And we showed that very clearly from Scripture last time. The second point was simply this. That God, at various times, in various ways, delegates his authority to other people. But in doing so, that authority never at any point ceases to be his. I used the example last time of driving a rental vehicle, a hire car. And you drive that car around and you can park it where you like and go where you like and do what you like, but it's not your car, as you will discover if you try and have it crushed. Very quickly you will work out that it's not your car and you're responsible to the owner for it. And, and so all authority is God's, though he delegates it 
he delegates it and it is still his and he is still in charge. And that leads then to the third point, which is that all delegated authority is limited. All delegated authority is limited. And this was the key thing. The authority was limited with, with three separate things. Limited with regards to person. Those who were here last week probably have forgotten everything I taught, other than my Greta Thunberg example. Um, that's the danger with illustrations. But yeah, only the right person can arrest you. You know, you, you, you can't simply, you can't have an American cop that goes over to, to Mexico and starts arresting people. You have no authority. You're the wrong person, you're number two in the wrong realm, and thirdly, there is a limit of extent. So delegated authority is limited to the realms of, uh, the area of people, in realm or sphere, and in extent. You, if you're the wrong person, you have no authority. You may be the right person, but that may not be the realm or the sphere that you have authority in. And you may be the right person, and it's the right realm, but you don't have that much authority. All authority that is delegated is limited. Okay? So there you go. That's where we left it last time. All authority is God's. God delegates authority, and all delegated authority is limited. Pretty simple stuff. Easy to show from the scripture. We did so last week, and I think pretty irrefutable. So that then leads us to where we are this week. What we, what we realized last time is this. That you have to render, and I can sum up the entirety of last week in this really. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But the key point is this. Caesar doesn't get to decide what is his. That's absolutely crucial that we get this point going into this week. That if we accept the three points of last week, then we must render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We must submit to various authorities that God's put in place. But Caesar doesn't get to decide how much authority he has. He doesn't get to decide how he exercises authority. He is a servant of God. And the only, this, and this is crucial, absolutely crucial, the only authority he has is the authority that is given to him by God. Why? Because all authority is God's. You see how these, these foundational principles help us? If all authority is God's, then Caesar only has the authority he has from God, and therefore he can only exercise it in the realm that God has given him that authority. If we understand that one point, then, then most of the nonsense that comes out of Christians and often pastors' mouths in, in the context of Romans 13 just, just gets blown away. Because you understand that there are limitations. So I have, I have two main points today. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here in case you think it's going to be really simple. Point number two is Romans 13. So that's a longer point. <laughs> but here's point number one leading into that. Caesar does have a domain. Authority has been delegated to Caesar. And by the way, in case anybody thinks I, I believe that we're living in ancient Rome, uh, I should probably mention Caesar is shorthand for government, authority, state, and, and what have you. Civil government. Caesar does have authority. He has been delegated authority by God. But one thing I want to make absolutely clear as we start, and you should keep your ribbon, finger, bit of paper, whatever, in Romans 13. But at the same time, turn with me to Hebrews 13. Caesar has his domain, and let me say this very clearly. His domain does not include the church. Caesar has a domain, but his domain does not include the church. Hebrews 13, you should hopefully be there. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Don't make me groan, folks. No advantage to you. Okay, here's the, here's the important part. If people really genuinely think... Submit to governing authorities. Romans 13, 1. We just got to do everything that the government says. 
If you really believe that's a correct interpretation, I would love for you to come to this church. Because presumably you're going to be consistent and hold the same interpretation to Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. Fantastic. Now I can get you to do anything I want as long as it's not sinful because you don't believe there's any limitations. Fantastic. Welcome. Come. Stay. You, you don't want to stay? I'm forbidding you from going. You have to submit. You see how that works? Nobody comes to Hebrews 13 and it says submit to your leaders, obey your leaders, do what your spiritual leaders say in the church. And nobody thinks, well, I've got to do everything that my pastor says. I say nobody. There are some who get pretty darn close to it. And that would be what we call heavy shepherding. When the pastor tells you what you can wear to church, when the pastor tells you who you can and can't marry, where the pastor tells you what job to take. If you ever go to a church like that, if that's your home church, if you're watching online and that's what your church is like, run, flee. Don't go back to say goodbye. Just get out of there. That is abusive. That is the very definition of spiritual abuse. One of the reasons that we have taken the approach that we have to masks in this church, which is very, very simple, wear one if you want to and don't if you don't. And if somebody does want to wear a mask and you see them wearing a mask, give them a bit of respect. They think differently than you if you're not wearing one. And then just respect a bit of distance and ask them first if they're happy for you to converse and what have you. But just let people make their own decisions. Why do we have that that principle here in this church? Because I'm not a doctor. It's not for me to tell you to wear a mask or not. That's not my sphere. That's not my realm. I don't have authority to that extent. And so we all have limitations with regards to authority. All delegated authority is limited. And so with Hebrews 13, what is abundantly clear is that these people broader context of scripture we're talking pastors elders deacons and what have you but but these people they are in charge in the church you you come here on a church context submit to those people that doesn't mean you have to do everything i say i wouldn't even try to tell you what job to take or not to take you know don't don't be one of those people who calls me up and says hey pastor do i wear a red top or a blue top today because I've got no interest in that. And you should be worried if I did. Th- that's just, that whole realm is limited. It's very limited. But when it comes to things like, you know, the, o- the other week, we changed things around. We used to do the Bible reading, and then we had the prayer, and then we had the sermon. Now we have the, the prayer, and then the Bible reading, and then the sermon. We're really mixing it up. And prior to that, after the prayer and the Bible reading, we actually had another song before we had the sermon. And then we kind of put that song earlier on and we moved things around. Sort of, sort of radical changes that people leave churches over. Trust me, I've been a pastor a long time. It really, not even joking, it really is. Um, <clears throat> but who gets to make those decisions? I didn't put in a request to Gavin Newsom. Hey, excuse me, boss, I'm thinking about changing the order of the service. Do you have any thoughts on this? No, no, no. I get to make that decision because I'm the pastor of the church. That's how it works. There's there's authority in that realm. Now, I'm going to mention this again later on as we kind of wrap things up more. But if you are the captain of a ship... And somebody comes along, let's let's say I'm, I'm 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 a boat owner, I own a ship, and you're the captain of my ship, and you're sailing my ship for me, and it's got some precious cargo on, and then some pirates come along, and they say, and these pirates come along and say, we'd like that boat please, thank you very much, and you say, sure, there you go. I'm going to give you the boat because that's what my owner will want me to do, I'm not going to be very happy. What, What has happened? In, in nautical terms, what has just happened? Mutiny. People have taken over the authority on the vessel. Mutiny. What has happened in churches around the country, some previously very good churches, is nothing short of mutiny. 
Caesar has come along and said, I will decide whether you sing or not. And the answer should have been, excuse me, sir, authority for this vessel has been given to me. I'm the captain. You don't have authority on this boat. That should have been the response. But in far too many places, they said, yes, Caesar, no Caesar, three bags full Caesar. How high would you like me to jump Caesar? Which hoop shall I go through Caesar? My friends, that is mutiny. Somebody has come along and taken over authority of the church. That's why we had to deal with our principles last time. There are leaders of the church and there are leaders in the state and they are not the same people. And so I wanted to be absolutely clear. Now, you don't need to, to turn there because I want you to stay in Hebrews because we're going to look at one other little thing before we move on. But I just wanted to read you briefly um, from Acts chapter 20. This is when Paul says farewell to the uh, elders of Ephesus, uh, the Ephesian elders. And he says a few things. And I just want to read this. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Listen. There are people that are going to want to stop the work of God in your church. And Paul is saying to them, you have been made overseers. Do you know who did that? Well, Paul, you you laid hands on us. No, 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 no. It was the Holy Spirit. God delegated authority to me to lay hands on you, but ultimately God did that. God gave you responsibility for that congregation. You were the overseer and God has given it to you. There are... And I kind of get emotional at this because I have, I have dear friends that have spectacularly dropped the ball on this. And it grieves my heart really badly. But you are overseer. God has given you that job. No man can come along and say, I'll have that, please. That's not their job. And you were supposed to defend it against the wolves. Against the ones that said, let's stop gathering together. Forget about everybody's well-being and mental health. Let's just do it on a screen. That won't make any difference. Oh, and when you do come, make sure you're outside. And when you're outside, make sure you socially distance. And when you socially distance, make sure you wear a mask. And when you're outside socially distancing, wearing a mask, please, whatever you do, don't sing. And the Christians are there saying, oh, sure, okay. I guess we can sing in our hearts. It's not a sin. It is shameful. It is utterly, utterly shameful. And you have, you have embraced mutiny. Because that authority was given to you. And it, and it is heartbreaking. It's utterly heartbreaking. And, and on one last thing, before I move back to Hebrews. I've made this observation that people, churches who have not recognized the limiting authority of Caesar, that Caesar's authority is delegated and thus limited, they're often the same churches that struggle with legalism because they haven't recognized that their own authority is delegated and limited too. Just an observation. I leave it with you. But the book of Hebrews, in that verse as it ends, in verse 17, they lead us, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's why if you can do anything in this life other than be a pastor, then do it. Anything else. Because you're going to be held accountable. I'm going to be held accountable for everything I say to you. I couldn't care if there was a thousand people here and I had to preach. I don't get nerves. But it scares the living daylights out of me preaching just to a few people that I might get it wrong that there might be consequences for your spiritual well-being because I misunderstood or misinterpreted or allowed my own thinking to override the teaching of Scripture. We're going to be held accountable. And I, again, it grieves my heart that there are so many in leadership who are being held accountable by God 
for the reneging of the responsibility that was given to them. Okay, so point number two. Caesar, point number one was that Caesar has his domain, but church is not his domain. So I guess point number two has to be, what is Caesar's domain? That's where everybody wanted me to start at the beginning on week one. And we're kind of like, okay, no, now we're going to get there. Romans 13, or uh, more accurately, Romans 12. <clears throat> context, 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 context. One more time, context. You've got to understand everything in context. And when you see Romans 13 in its context, it's going to look very, very different. Okay, really quickly, this little bit as we go through. Regulars here are very familiar with the analogy I use for Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 is predominantly what God has done for us. Very, very few commands. This is what God's done for you. This is what he has accomplished. Then we get chapters 4, 5, and 6. Then this is how you live in light of what he's done for you. That's why Roman, um, Ephesians chapter 4 um, verse 1 says um, that he says, I urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Because God's called you, because you have this salvation, because of chapters 1, 2, and 3, therefore you need to live this way, 4, 5, and 6. And obviously one of the key factors in that is living in love and humility, which is always central to the Christian walk. Yes? That's pretty simple. So when we have the book of Romans, the theology of Romans is contained in the first 11 chapters. Not the first 8, the first 11 in fact, chapters 9, 10, and 11 is the center of the book of Romans and the main purpose for it being written, but that's for another day. But when we get to chapter 12, we now begin to deal with, okay, we've had the theology, we know what God's done, we know what he thinks, we know about salvation, how then do we live? Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be transformed to this world, uh, sorry, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, this is very similar to Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 3. This is your summary statement of what the Christian life looks like. Then from that point, we now go, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and we look at what the Christian life looks like more specifically. So generally speaking, what does a Christian life look like? It's a life of worship. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life where we're not conformed to the world, but we're transformed into the image of Christ. That's what the Christian life looks like. Now let's look at the specifics. Okay? So when we come to verse 3, 3 through 8 is telling us how we behave, and specifically, I guess, how we love, in the church. How, how, do, how do we function within the church? And you'll see that it's one of those passages that talks about one body and many members and the various gifts that are given to us. And so the focus is very squarely on the church. <clears throat> and when we get to verse 9, which is where I had Jenny begin reading, this is a very crucial verse. Now, I'm going to make a... a, 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 a I'm going to tentatively make a, uh, a suggestion here. I'm always cautious about things when other people haven't seen the things that I've seen. I'm just like, oh, you're probably, you're probably off in cloud cuckoo land, Anthony. But I, I think I'm right here. I think that Paul here has an echo of Isaiah chapter 5. The book of Romans is so rooted in Isaiah. I've actually refused to teach the book of Romans until I finished teaching Isaiah. Because I feel I need to understand Isaiah to be able to pick up all the Isaianic references in the book of Romans. I don't just mean the quotations, I mean all the subtle nudges and hints and what have you. Isaiah is everywhere in the book of Romans. So, when he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. In, in basic terms, that's very simple to understand. Those who did James with us will understand this better, actually. The, you can't just say, oh, love. Love is like this, this fluffy word. Oh, let's all love. All you need is love. Da, 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 da. All you need is love. Da, da, da. All you need is love, 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 love is all you need. 
sparing you my singing, but you know the reference, right? So, the, so love is this, is this thing that everybody, you know, and, and then of course in society today, people will take that and say, this universal acceptance of love and say, oh, love is love. It's all the same. It doesn't matter who you love. Love is love and all of this. The book of James was very clear that loving our neighbor has to be done a specific and certain way. God defines how we love our neighbor. And if we don't do it how God defines it, then we're not loving our neighbor. Right? So, for example, in James, when he was referencing back to Leviticus, James is saying, you have to love your neighbor. And Leviticus said, no partiality to rich or poor. So James says, no partiality. The implication is, is if you have partiality, that's not love. Which is basically the, uh, the, the nuke that blows up the whole concept of of critical race theory, you know, and all of that. This idea that we have to favor different groups. There is no partiality in the church, not positively and not negatively. And if you do that in the name of love, guess what? God disputes your definition of love. You can't do that. He defines it, not you. And so if you want to have genuine love, then what you have to do is you have to abhor, hate what is evil. You have to say, no, that's not okay. The world says it's okay, but it's not okay. I don't like things that are wicked and evil. And equally, you've got to cling hold to things that are good. Man, right now, I don't want to be faithful. Right now, I don't want to have to treat this person right. But I've got to really cling on to what is good in this time. Right? So... Now, this is crucial. I know it's going to be a very obvious question, but it's a crucial one nonetheless. Who gets to define what is evil and what is good? That would be God. Pretty obvious, right? So I think he's referring here to um, Isaiah. And I'm just going to turn to Isaiah. You don't need to turn there. Um, because... Uh, I was about to say, because I'll do it quicker, but that's not happening, is it? Isaiah 5 and verse 20, it's a very well-known verse, but it's going to become crucial, because we're going to have to come back to this. Um, Isaiah 5 and verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. You're familiar with that verse, I imagine, and the concept? Woe to those who call murder healthcare. You know, that kind of thing. We live in a world that looks at evil and says that's good. And looks at things that are good and say that's evil. Why? Because they're wise in their own eyes. So Paul says, in Romans, we've got to love properly. You say, where is this going? I thought we were talking about government. Oh, we're going to government, don't worry. For your love to be genuine, you have to hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. That is crucial. We're going to come back to that. Okay, so that's verse 9. Now, when we look at verses 10 through 13, or 9 through 13, I suppose you can include that part, then what we're seeing is how we love each other as Christians. This is clearly Christian love in verses 10 through 13. Love one another. The one another is the real giveaway. But also, it says specifically in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Lots of people misunderstand this. Liberal churches have misunderstood this for generations. The, the idea is that, you know, we just have to, we have to practically, physically, financially, we have to just love everybody. Because we just got to love everybody. No, 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 no. We have a duty to our own. We have a duty to our own. Most of the passages that people quote are love one another passages. They're talking about the love that we have as a church for one another. But when we get to verse 14, we see that there is nonetheless, though it's not the same love, you know, the love I have for my children is not the same love as the love I have for my wife. Because I promise to love her forsaking all others. By the way, parents, that includes your children. Mothers especially need to be reminded sometimes. I don't love you guys at church as much as I love my children. And I don't love other people as much as I love you guys. There, there, are, there are rankings, as it were. That's fine. That's normal. That's how it should be. 
So just because the love one another passages don't apply outside the church doesn't mean that we're mean and nasty outside the church. And that's where we come to in verse 14. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. And we have this section where this idea of hostility begins in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, and is there again in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. And in the middle, we have references to rejoicing and weeping, living in harmony, not being haughty. Why do I say that slowly, not being haughty? Because it's those who are proud and wise in their own eyes who are the ones who get muddled up between good and bad. That's Isaiah chapter 5 again. Okay, so now we come to verse 17. Now this is where you need to put your thinking caps on. This is where I need a whiteboard, but we're not doing it as a sermon. I haven't got a whiteboard and and it would be lost on many people if we did anyway. So you need to kind of visualize this. We've spoken in the past about chiastic structures. Regulars know at this point I mentioned ABBA, the Swedish pop group, that you have A, here's, here's one topic, B comes on long next, then we're back to B again, it repeats it, and now we're back to A again. And we have this kind of striated structure of, of, uh, of a text. What we have here is we have a chiastic structure in verses 17 to 21, that's the end of the chapter, and we go A, B, C, D, and then C, B, A back down again. So I want you to follow with me. Because it's really clear, and it shows you very clearly what Paul is doing here. In verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So we have two evils, two evils, and a but do something else. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, we have a, don't do this, but do this, and we have two evils. That's, like, that's almost identical. Evil, evil, don't do this, don't do evil, but do the good. Okay? There's your two A's. Now, look at, now let's look at the B's. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, do good rather than do evil. In verse 20, when you go in from the other end, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do good to those people outside the church. So this is, again, the context is people outside the church. We've looked at it, the concept of hostility. You've got to bless those who persecute you. And now we have this very careful structure. Two evils, but, two evils, but. Now we go one line in, do good to them and do good to them. Now let's go in a little bit more to verse... We've only got verse 19 in the middle, but there's actually a structure within verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not avenge, that's C, because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So vengeance is the next one coming in. And then what do we have in the middle? If we go from evil, evil, but, do good, vengeance, what's in the middle? The wrath of God. Now, I've said this to many of you before, but for those who are new, the reason that the Bible writers have these kind of structures is they didn't have access to bold, underline, asterisking either side like people do on social media, or or, or the the dreaded caps lock, you know, turn off caps lock, you're shouting at me, that kind of thing, right? They didn't have access to that. So they had to, with the structure of the text, find a way to emphasize. And what this is doing is it's emphasizing that in the midst of evil, we are to do good and we are not to take vengeance because vengeance is God's because God is the one who has to have wrath. It's God's job to have wrath. Not your job, God's job. Now, that's Romans 12. We've got our context. This is good. We're moving forwards. But let's look at this in light of what we've done the last week and a half. You have something bad done to you. There's a guy who's a friend of, well, acquaintance slash friend of mine who I talk to occasionally. And he's a godly man. He's been through a lot of trials. He's a, he's a, he's a, a pastor and he's a great teacher. And he's a good guy. 
and he, he was saying the other day his daughter was going off to university, he was very excited, and then his daughter got raped at university. Now, is there any parent in that situation who doesn't immediately feel wrath? Who doesn't feel like there should be vengeance? And, and, and guys, that's a godly thing in many senses. Because what it is, is that within us, there is a sense of, there must be justice. And there must be. There must be justice. When someone hurts you, or your own, or your loved ones, when someone treats you badly, when someone assaults you, when someone violates you, when someone steals from you, there must be justice. Because that is a godly response, because God is a God of justice. Is he not? What is this text saying to us then? Is it saying, oh, it doesn't matter, no big deal? Of course it's not saying that. Is it saying, oh, you shouldn't worry about things like that? You know, you know focus on, on the things of God. Oh, you know, you getting worried about physical realm stuff. Oh, you silly Christian. It doesn't say that either. There is much room for lament in Scripture and such situations. What it says is this. And let's put it in the terminology that we've been using. You do not have the authority to take vengeance. That's mine. It's not your realm. It's not your sphere. It's not your job. And trust me, look at what's in the center of this chiasm. I have wrath. I'm angry. I will deal with it. But it's mine. It's not yours. That's the main point that he's making. That is our context to Romans 13. Let's do it. Let's finally get there. And with a week of preparation in getting principles of scripture, a week of, a half a week of looking at the context, we can now actually understand Romans 13 and hopefully rise above all of the preconceived ideas and notions that you've gathered over the years. Romans 13 verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Most people in the last year and a half when they've referenced this, they've read half a verse, stopped there and said, see, you've got to submit to the governing authorities. I've got a shocker for you folks. The government is not mentioned in Romans 13 verse 1. Governing authorities literally means higher authorities, superior authorities. This is the same thing that Paul does when he writes in Ephesians, where he says in Ephesians 5.20, you need to all be submitting to one another, submit to one another. What do you mean, one another? I mean, like, well, all of us? No, no. There are realms in which you submit, and you must submit to people in that realm. For example, wives submit to your husbands. So there is a general principle, submit to one another, and then there's the specifics, wives and husbands and children, and so on and so forth. In, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter does exactly the same thing. He makes a general principle, submit to the people you're supposed to submit to, and then he specifically deals with government, he deals with masters and slaves, he deals with wives and deals with children, and so on and so forth. He deals with the same things. Actually, he, does, he doesn't deal with children, but anyway... Um, he deals with the, the same sort of concepts. But there is a general principle of submission first, and then there are the, the specifics. Romans 13.1 basically says, when you have authorities higher than you, submit to them. It's a general principle. No government has been mentioned at this point. It's just a general principle. This applies as much to... This applies to wives and their husbands. This applies to children and their parents. This applies to slaves and masters. This applies to, to, to government, yes. This applies to all delegated authority within the limitations that has been given. But let me tell you this. This applies to presidents and governors who must submit to their higher authority. In America, the Constitution. And this applies to all people who must submit to the highest authority which is God. And when you understand that, then suddenly Romans 13.1 is very, very different. Because rather than Romans 13.1 saying, hey, you've got to do what the governor says, Romans 13.1 is saying, hey, governor, you've got to do what God says. We all have to submit to the higher authorities, whomever they might be. Why? 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Does that sound familiar? We may have covered that in the last week or so. God has all authority. He's the one who delegates it. And that is why we submit to those we're supposed to submit to. Because really we're submitting to God because he's delegated that authority. And that is the really frightening thing, I think, for for governors and for presidents and for policemen and for all people who have authority and pastors and husbands. It's a scary thing because God has given us that authority and we are accountable to him. Verse 2, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, does Romans 13 have nothing to say about government? No, it does, but that's in verse 3. We're coming to that. But in verse 2, we still have nothing about civil government specifically. We've just been told to submit to higher authorities generally. We've been told to do so because God has delegated that authority. And then in verse 2, we've been told, you be very careful not to resist. Because if you resist, then you're incurring judgment. Hey, Mr. President, you have to submit to the Constitution. And if you don't, God's going to judge you. That's a fair statement. Doesn't matter if you like the president or not, doesn't matter what party that any particular president is from, that is a true statement from Romans 13, verse 2. You have to submit to the, whoever you are, you have to submit to the authorities above you, and if you don't, you're accountable to God. That is, that's crucial that we understand that. So Romans 13, 1 and 2, I think has far less to do with warning us to obey the state than it has to warn the state to, to, to rule justly. But government comes in in verse 3. Here's our example. And this is why he's raised this whole issue. Why why has why he suddenly started talking about submitting to authority? Because it flows from chapter 12. And you're going to see why in a moment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath, out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Listen, what Paul has done is very deliberately, very clearly link the beginning of chapter 13 with the end of chapter 12. And he's done so by repeating all of the key words. Now the one problem here, I'm reading from the ESV, and it has done, and and I don't say this lightly, an appalling job here. Because in my text, in verse 3 it says bad, in verse 4 it says wrong, and also in verse 4 it says wrongdoers. The word in each of those three cases is evil. Evil, evil, evildoers. Why is that important? Because in the last, at the end of chapter 12, it, the, the context was evil, 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 evil. Abhor what is evil. That was one of the key words, evil. Although actually in verse 9 it's a different word, but let's leave that. But the evil, evil, and evil, evil in 17 and 21. Evil is mentioned four times, and it's the same word. Evil is mentioned in contrast to good. Do not be overcome with evil, verse 21, but overcome evil with good. And here we have, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to evil. And then what else do we have here? God, servant of God, an avenger, vengeance, carries out God's wrath. Not only to avoid God's wrath. We have a repetition of all the key words, good, evil, vengeance, wrath. All of those things in chapter 12 are repeated in chapter 13. Why? Because that's the whole point of what he's saying. He's saying this, you must not carry out vengeance. It's not your sphere, it's not your domain. I am God, I get to do that. But... Romans 13, 1 and 2, I have authorities that I delegate authority to. And you must submit to those authorities as they do the job that I've delegated them to do. What have you delegated the government to do? To punish evil. 
That's not your job. That's their job. To punish evil. So what's the point of Romans 13? The point of Romans 13 is that God has given us government to take over the role of punishing evil because quite frankly we can't be trusted. Man, if something did, someone did something to one of my kids, I couldn't be trusted. Could you? My righteous anger and my more sinful anger are going to merge together and be indistinguishable in my eyes. So God has given us those who would rule ideally soberly, discerning between good and evil, and would say, that is good and that is evil. And this evil needs to be punished because there needs to be justice, because God has decreed there will be justice, and I am God's servant who is executing that judgment on his behalf. Notice the, the phrase, servant of God, is repeated twice here. I mean, if people think that Romans 13 means that Gavin Newsom says jump and all the churches in California have to say how high, they just simply haven't understood Romans 13. Romans 13 has got more to say to Gavin Newsom than it does to us. More to say to the president, more to say to mayors, more to say to police officers. And I'm delighted that police officers are rising up and saying, we will not enforce this mandate, we will not do enforce that mandate. Why? Because they don't have the authority to do so. More of that later, more next week rather. But I want you to understand that this is what Romans 13 is saying. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct to bad. So if you do good, then rulers should be leaving you alone. What they should be doing is punishing you when you do bad conduct. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive approval. You're supposed to fear government on what occasion? On the occasions that you do something wrong. When you're driving down the road and it's a 40 mile an hour speed limit and you're going at 35 and you're looking around and you're checking your mirrors and you're aware of your surroundings and you're sober and the police car comes behind you You've nothing to fear. For whatever reason, I'm always petrified, even when that is the case. But, but you really shouldn't fear, right? But if you're going in that same 40 mile an hour limit at 70 miles an hour, with music blaring out the windows and a bottle of beer in your hand, and then you see the police coming up behind you, you should fear. You're supposed to. That's what he's saying here. Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. So if you do what's good, the government should say, boy." But if you do wrong, that's when you're afraid. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. He has the sword. If you go back to Genesis 9, there is provision made for capital punishment. Now, I, I understand that people disagree on this point. I, I get it. And I think you're perfectly entitled to think that capital punishment shouldn't happen in a corrupt judicial system. That would be a different position altogether. But the fact that capital punishment in and of itself isn't wrong is very clear biblically. And government has been given the authority to take a life. Government has been given the authority to put people in prison. Government has been given the authority to fine. Government has been given the authority to punish. But to punish what? Evil. Evil. And who defines evil? And who defines good? God does. God does. And so we need to understand that when the government, the servant of God, avenges God's wrath upon wrongdoers, then the government is working within, it's the right people, in the right sphere, doing things to the right extent. That's what government is supposed to do. It's supposed to punish wrongdoing. But it doesn't get to define wrongdoing. Do you see the distinction? That's absolutely crucial. Government gets to punish wrongdoing. Government doesn't get to define wrongdoing. The government essentially said that if you were having church when they said you couldn't, that you were doing wrong and you should be punished. Are they government? Do they get to punish wrongdoers? Yes, they do. That's the right sphere. Do they get to define what is wrong? No, they do not. Do they get to take something that God has said is good, church? 
No, they do not. And do they get to go into the sphere of the church? No, they do not. So what does that mean for us as Christians? It means this, friends. It means that if I come up to you tomorrow and I walk into your house and say, green couch, get rid of that monstrosity immediately and get yourself a blue one. That you will hopefully say to me, pastor, mind your own business. Get out of my, who gave you a key in the first place? Get out of my house. That, that's hopefully your response, right? Because what's it got to do with me? Nothing to do with me at all. And you know there are people like that, aren't there? Just as an aside, come to your house and mind your own business. None of you should be those kind of busybodies. So when the governor comes and says, hey Christian church that I have no authority over, I want to define things that God's called good as evil and punish you for not doing them. Are we cool? No, we're not cool. We are definitively not cool. We reject your claim to authority, we reject your commands, and we reject your mandates. And I hope that we can see, as we look at this text, that this has a much broader application than simply the church. Even within the world, the government has limited authority. It's not like we walk outside the church and now suddenly, you know, everything that the government says we have to do, and we're, we're, you know, we're safe in this building like it's some kind of, you know, embassy or something, you know, I don't know. But that's not the case at all. They still have limited authority. If, if you do something that's good and the government tries to punish it, then the government does not have the authority to do that. Why? Because the only authority they have is God's, and God's delegated it to them. And God doesn't say, oh, darn it, I gave them authority, and they're doing a really bad job. What can you do? That's not the case. They don't have authority. You see, but they're still in power. Well, they may be in power in the sense of have that position, and God may well remove them from power, as he is in the business of doing. We saw Daniel 2 last week. But... They don't have authority because the only authority they ever had was from God. Absolutely crucial. Now, it's clear that they have authority in a degree of areas. Look at verse 6. That because of this, you also pay taxes for the authority are ministers of God. There we are with the whole servant minister thing again. Attending to this very thing. In other words, it costs to have government, and therefore we have to pay to have government. That's a biblical principle. Sorry, guys, I know some of you, you know, taxation is theft and all of that, but that's, that's the principle. But the, the problem is, the problem isn't that we're supposed to pay tax to government. The problem is, is that government's doing about 55 million things, and God's only asked it to do about five of them. And it gets expensive when you start adding other, other duties and chores up that you were never given. But let's leave that for another day. Um, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honour to whom honour is owed. There, the government exists. It is here in its place to protect us. If I want to go to your home with a gun and steal all your belongings, then we want the police to turn up with an armed response and say, no, sir, you will not do that. And if you don't put that gun down, then we're going to use ours on you. There needs to be a sword that is wielded to protect people and to punish evildoers. That is the job of the government. That is the job of the government. But the government doesn't get to define good, and it doesn't get to define evil. The government doesn't get to make medical mandates. The government doesn't get to decide how you, what you put in your body, how you, whether you have a vaccine or not. That's not the government's job. It doesn't have that authority. If you disagree with me, fine, show me in Scripture. Show me in Scripture where the government has been given that authority by God. I don't see it. And the problem that we have is that we have a government that is so far out of control and thinks it can do whatever it likes that really we're at a point now where, well, what do we do? Well, we'll have to deal with that next time. Can't do everything in a week, can I? There's always, there's always a cliffhanger for you to come back. But yeah, we'll have to look at that next time. But the reality is, is that we understand the principle it doesn't have that authority. It doesn't have that authority. And so, when I look out in the world today, Christians will say... For example, well, the government's told me that I have to wear a mask while I go for a hike outside, which was 
Pardon me, it's not the case now, but it was the case uh, a few months back. The government's told me I have to wear a mask while I go for a hike in the fresh open air. And Christians, well-meaning Christians, Christians were saying, well, you know what? Romans 13, verse 1, we've got to submit to the governing authorities. We've got to do as we're told. Um, is it sinful for me to wear a mask while I'm outside? No, it's not. So therefore, I've got to do it. Absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. The government telling me to wear a mask outside while I go for a run or a hike is about as relevant as you telling me to do so. You have no authority. They have no authority. No authority, no authority, no authority. They just don't have that, that power. That, that it's, not their, it's not in their realm. It gets slightly harder when you have things like shops because, of course, the realm of the shop is the realm of the manager. But the manager's operating under government and government's saying, well, you know, you've got to allow for people with you know, different medical conditions and what have you, so there are workarounds and what have you. But broadly speaking, the government just doesn't get to say. And, and, and let me just say that what the government has very cleverly done is has reneged on most of this enforcement and passed it on to others. You know, well, we're not going to enforce you wearing masks in a store. The store will enforce it. We will just simply punish the stores if they don't enforce it. It's all well and good you saying, well, it's a store. You've got to do what the manager says because it's their store. But what happened when that manager's got their arm twisted behind their back and they've got someone got a gun to their head? That's not, that's not the same thing at all. So... That isn't to say that we can't wear masks in stores. That isn't to say that we shouldn't do any of these things. That isn't to say that we turn up at work tomorrow and say, well, I'm not going to do what you say. These are issues that we'll discuss in more detail next time. Because you know what's really convenient? When you finish Romans 13, you know what comes next? Romans 14. And it's dealing with the whole issue of, of conscience. When we feel convicted to do one thing and other people feel convicted to do another thing. And so we'll look at that. And we'll look at that next time. But as we leave Romans 13, I think your understanding is going to be very, very different perhaps now than it was before. Notice that the government is a punisher of evil for God. It is doing God's job. Vengeance belongs to God. The wrath belongs to God. They are simply have been delegated the role of exercising that on behalf of God. So when the government punishes you with a fine, when the government punishes you with imprisonment, if the government punishes you with death, that is God's wrath that they are meeting out. Which means they have to know what is good and what is evil. So I have three things to say in closing, very, very briefly, as a summary. To us, to us, you Christians are to submit to all governing authorities. If somebody has been given authority, the, the right person in the right realm with the right limitations, then you're to submit to them. In doing so, you're submitting to God because he has all authority. And you should fear not submitting to the right person in any domain that you're supposed to because essentially you're rebelling against God and there are consequences of that. So make sure you do so. That said... What we need to take away from today's message is that it does not teach the Bible that the government is the highest of all authorities. Government doesn't overrule the husband in the home. Government doesn't overrule the pastor in the church. There is not a hierarchical structure. There are different realms and we are to submit within those realms. If somebody comes up to you and says, you must do this, your first question should be, who are you and on what basis do you do that? Jesus said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. On what authority? When he came in and did that, he turned over all the tables in the temple, didn't he? He turned them all over, made a big mess, and they didn't say, why are you doing this? Because they knew darn well why he was doing it. Because they had turned it into a, into a marketplace. The question was, on what authority do you do this? So the lesson for us today is submit when someone has authority, but when someone commands you to do something, don't presume that they have authority. Secondly, message to churches. Don't hand over your responsibility. There are churches that have lost people, and rightly so, over this very issue. I don't understand how 
churches could basically say, we will do what Caesar says and we will give him all of our authority. And then, well, let me put it like this. When it happened and the government said shut down, initially we all did because we thought, you know, bodies in the streets and what have you, and it became apparent that wasn't the case. And we, we quickly got things opened up again. And there were many of us who stood up and said, no, we're going to keep going. Some more loudly and boldly than others. But the majority of churches did what Caesar said. And those same churches that told their people, go home, we don't want you. Stay at home if you're too old. Come to church, but only outside. Put on a mask when you come. Don't sing. All of this kind of stuff. The same churches that did that, and I'm talking very specifically about California right now. Those same churches are now meeting inside without masks. You know why? Because of the people who stood up the very people that they criticized and condemned for standing up and for not submitting. Those people stood up, and because of that, the other churches can now meet. And that makes me angry. And I feel that those who drop the ball shouldn't be given the ball again. They can't be trusted. Unless there's repentance. And what I am seeing around about California more and more and more is I'm seeing churches opening up, people meeting indoors, people getting rid of restrictions, no more masks, no more social distancing. I'm seeing it more and more in California. But you know what I'm not seeing? I'm not seeing any repentance. I'm not seeing those who bowed to Caesar repenting of bowing to Caesar. I'm not seeing those who told people not to come to church repenting of that. I'm not seeing people... I'm not seeing people say that they were wrong. I'm just seeing them benefiting from those they criticised. Not okay. I'm going to leave it at that before I get myself in trouble. Finally and thirdly, there's something, a message to us, there's a message to the other churches, and there's a message to Caesar. Here's a message to Caesar. In Isaiah 10 verse 5, we referenced it last week, Assyria was the rod of my anger. I have absolutely no doubt that the government that we have in this country and this state is partly a judgment against this nation. Rod of God's anger. What's the solution? Repent and turn to God, I guess, for the nation. Well, they won't repent. They don't believe in Jesus. Well, better go and tell them, haven't we? It's fairly simple stuff. They're the rod of God's anger. But then Isaiah 10 goes on, and in verse 12, he says, I will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. I will punish the heart of the arrogant king of Assyria. In other words, just because God has used someone for judgment doesn't mean that they're not responsible and they're not accountable. In Roman Romans 12 and verse 6, never be wise in your own sight. That's the other link to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, don't call good evil and evil good. Don't call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. Woe to you who are wise in your own eyes. Woe to you who think that you can redefine what is good and what is evil. Woe to you. And so my message finally is to the government. To the to civil government. And not just me, I'm nobody, I'm just a pastor of a small church. But for us all, for us as Christians, the time has come to stand up and say to government, no, you don't have that authority. What authority you have was given to you by God. And you do not have the authority to do this and that and what have you. You don't. We don't recognize your authority in those realms. And more so, the authority you do have, what it is that you are supposed to be doing, is you're supposed to be rewarding good and punishing evil, and you can't even tell the difference. So woe to you, you who are wise in your own eyes, because God will punish your arrogant hearts like he did for the Assyrians before you. Man, do you know what? I come from England, and a mile from where I used to live as the crow flies was a place called Leeds Castle. And the oldest part of Leeds Castle was approximately five centuries older than this new modern nation of America. 
So my wife, who's a historian, when, when she's American history, <laughs> that's a short book, you know. She doesn't say that, but you know what I mean. We, we have a history going way, way back in England, right? And we got invaded by the French and had a French government and then somebody else, the Vikings, came over. And, and America is a young country. And America doesn't often remember that nations rise and nations fall. Too many Americans think that America is somehow going to usher in, you know, this, America's so... Please. you got nothing on Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And God made him eat grass and then brought the Medo-Persians in and tore it all down. The great and mighty Alexander the Great was taken down by a bunch of barbarians. Woe to those who go beyond the boundaries that God gives them. So what can we do as Christians? Yes, we can call on people to repent, call on people to turn to Jesus, call on the nation to to turn to God that he might turn back from judgment. But we also need to say to the government, woe to you. You're misusing God's authority, redefining good and evil, and you will be held accountable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Romans 13. We thank you for the clarity that it gives us. May we be doers of good and not doers of wrong that we would have no need to fear. And Lord, that's not always the case. There are those who are punishing good and rewarding evil. May we stay faithful in the midst of this time. May we be bold in speaking the truth, holding government to account, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom as well that we might be pragmatic in these difficult times. Amen.